from the 17th, from the 16th chapter of Luke. I'm reading verses 1 through 9. The 16th chapter of Luke, verses 1 through 9. Now he was also saying to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and this steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. And the steward said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the stewardship away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I am removed from the stewardship, they will receive me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors and began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous steward because he acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in their relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, Make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. This story of the shrewd steward who sought to feather his own nest with his master's money has been called the most puzzling parable Jesus ever preached. I'll have to admit that I've had some disdain about this parable myself because it seems to glorify a person whom every instinct of mine would mark as a common scoundrel, a con man. For this guy uh, squanders his master's money and when he learns that he's found out, he goes to all of the debtors that owe his master and says to them, you know, just reduce the debts you owe, 50% and and 20%, and uh, thinking that in doing so he could replenish the treasury he's he's obviously uh, pilfered from and gain some friends in the process that might employ him when he gets out of work. What a... I guess you'd say that this guy at best is marginally despicable. But but the master commends him for this. What a puzzling thing. One of the most difficult parables to understand, but when you dig into it and find the, the real truth that's there, it's one of the greatest, one of the most precious gems Jesus ever taught. Let me give you the background. He's talking to his disciples, but the Pharisees are listening in. Verse 14 helps us see that. And I think it's quite obvious that Jesus really taught telling this for the Pharisees' sake. 
And he's talking about worldly wealth, a favorite topic of the Pharisees, for their passion was possessions. And I can just imagine as Jesus unfurled this story that these disciples are nudging themselves, getting ready for Jesus to drop a bomb on them about their uh, avarice and their selfishness, and, and, and He's going to condemn them. Imagine their surprise when He didn't, and their shock when He actually commended this guy. Now the question is, why would Jesus stoop so low as to commend a person of this kind of obvious uh, caliber? And there is a truth, however, a, main ma a major matter of this parable, for every parable has one proposition, and here is the proposition in answer to the question, why would Jesus commend such a guy? Here's the proposition that Jesus saw in the sons of the world some qualities that He'd like to see in all of us. He saw something in this shrewd steward He'd like to see in you and in me. Well, what are these qualities? Glad you asked. The first is fervor. Now when Jesus commended this person, He was actually commending the enthusiasm and the commitment by which He approached His business. No sacrifice. And He's, he's, he's saying that the sons of the world have this enthusiasm and commitment that, that I'd like to see in the sons of God. No sacrifice is too difficult or great. No challenge is too great or too difficult. I, I, can you imagine what it would be like if the people of God went about the business of God with as much enthusiasm and commitment as we go about the business, our business in the secular world? Thomas Edison was a workaholic before that term became popular. And his wife kept nagging at him to take a vacation. You're going to kill yourself. Get away and take a vacation. He said, well, where would I go and what would I do? And she said, well, just find out where you would rather go than any place on earth and just go there and do what they do there. So the next morning he got up and was getting dressed and she said, where are you going? He said, I'm going back to the lab. And she said, I thought you were going to take a vacation. He said, no, you said go where you'd rather go than any place on earth and do what they do there, so I'm going back to work. Can you imagine what it would be like if we approached the work of God like that? Now, come on, let's be honest with ourselves. Most of us see the business of God as a burden as a responsibility that we have to do because nobody else would do it and God might get mad at us if we didn't and we just carry it around like a crushing load. Enthusiasm. It comes from the Greek word entheos. It means to be in God. It refers to a kind of a divine power. Now, I'm not talking about a slap, happy, loud mouth. I'm talking about a person who is enthusiastic. There is just something about a person of enthusiasm 
that, you know, something about their walk and their talk and their smile and their handshake. There's a kind of an incandescence about them. There's a fire burning in them that just kind of draws you to them, a magnetism. That's what he wants to see in the people of God. Now, enthusiasm involves optimism and hope. An optimist is a person who sees an opportunity in every difficulty, and a pessimist is a person who sees a difficulty in every opportunity. The kingdom of God is made up of, of pessimists. Optimism and hope and commitment. Now listen to me carefully. I believe this deeply, that there will be no excellence, no success in anything we do apart from a vital commitment to it. You can't just get something done successfully without commitment. Um, a, a lady by the name of Ellen Boardman writes for the Boston Globe, and her column is syndicated. She tells about a friend of hers who doesn't believe in commitments. He won't make a commitment. He says, well, people who make commitments are like the guys who in a cafeteria line get all this stuff first. You know, I've done that a jillion times. I mean, you just, you know, you see something and, you, you, and by the time you get down to what you see, you, you, your tray is full and you find something you want better. You know, you want more, but your tray is full. He said, commitment is like that. Helen Boardman said, no, a lack of commitment is like coming to the end of the cafeteria line with an empty tray. A life that's not, has no commitment about it, is an empty life, regardless of what you're doing. I read recently about a couple who was celebrating their 60th courtship anniversary. They'd been going together for 60 years and had not made a commitment to marriage. Now that, my folks, is fear of commitment. Now, I believe that there are two things that are involved in commitment. I believe that there is conviction and discipline involved in commitment. Now, what is a conviction? A conviction about, uh, that somebody has is, a, is something that holds him. An opinion is what you hold, but a conviction is what holds you. It's a principle that permanently abides in you and, and shapes your destiny, your character, perpetually. Having a conviction sustains you in a crisis. We get our word convict from that. It means that it holds us prisoner. We can't be disloyal to it. A conviction, I have a conviction, it means that something grips me that I can't escape. You have a conviction about anything. See. Um, I think it was Brian Harbour who told about a preacher who was talking to a lady one night at a banquet, a secular banquet. She was a budding young actress, and, he, and they were in this conversation about declining morality. And he said, would you live with a guy that wasn't your husband for a million dollars? She said, of course I would. Be a fool not to. He said, let me ask you a second question. Would you live with a guy for a hundred dollars? She said, of course not. What kind of person do you think I am? He said, we've already established what kind of person you are. We're just trying to determine the price. Now, a person who has a commitment that involves a conviction 
will not sell out his principles, his values, regardless of the price. Do you have a conviction about anything? Just to have a conviction, however, without discipline is of no value, for a commitment has conviction that translates into discipline. And I believe this totally, completely, that success and excellence in the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of God will not be achieved except at a great sacrifice or price. I mean, there will be the discipline of a payment of a price. Um, it means that if you're going to be a good student, you study while others play. It means that if you're going to be a good businessman, you're going to be working while others sleep. The height of great men reached and kept was not attained by sudden flight. But they, while their companions slept, were toiling upward in the night. I heard about, I don't know if it's a true story or not, but I heard about some people who were watching a fire. Their little community was on fire. Some of the main businesses, it looked like it was going to burn down, and volunteer fire department couldn't get it out. About that time, up on the top of a hill, up on a high hill, they saw this truck coming, and just in full speed, a pickup truck loaded down with laborers. And they came down this hill and just plunged into the fire. Those guys fell out of the truck and beat out the flames with their coats. Heroes. And they were given a plaque and $1,000 in reward of their heroism. And they asked the guy who was driving the truck, what are you going to do with your $1,000? He said, first thing I'm going to do is get the brakes fixed on that old truck of mine. I'm going to get killed. Now, do you, do, do you attain excellence by just falling into it? I mean, do, do you just by accident become successful in anything, not on your life? It will cost you if you get there. Now, what Jesus liked about this shrewd man was this this enthusiasm, this commitment, and he's looking for it in the people of God. With optimism and hope, with commitment and discipline and conviction. Where is it? There's a second thing he lacked, liked about these, this man was his foresight. Now, an interesting thing here is that the word he uses for shrewd in verse 8 is a word that literally it means intelligent thinking or vision. And what Jesus is saying is this, is that the people of the world pursue their goals with vision and foresight, much more vision and foresight than the people of God, than Christians, pursue their goals. For when the son of the world faced a crisis, he did intelligent thinking, he evaluated the situation, analyzed it, he considered the options, he chose a course of action, and he went for it. And what Jesus is saying is this, is that the people who most profoundly and permanently affect their world are the people who have foresight and vision and insight and perception. They're the dreamers. 
Where are the dreamers? There are people who can see through something. Where are the seers? Henry Martin was a missionary to the Muslim world. It was said of him that he saw the Muslim world, Iraq and Persia, whatever. He saw the Persian world, the, the, the Muslim world, while his contemporaries were bickering over some theological issue. It was said of Samuel Chadwick that he seemed to march on alone while his contemporaries saw nothing to pursue. And William Carey held up a map to the world and saw the world on it while his preacher fellows were suffering from tunnel vision and saw only their little parishes. How far can you see? Where are the dreamers? I believe that foresight involves two things. I believe it involves perception. Now there was this co-ed who had two problems. This probably didn't sound familiar, but she had two problems, bad grades and no money. And so she needed to break the news to her parents about bad grades and I need more money but she didn't know how to do it. She came up on a great idea. Might want to check this out, gang. She wrote her mom and dad this letter. Just thought I'd drop you a note to clue you in on my plans. I've fallen in love with a guy named Jim. He quit high school after grade 11 to get married. About a year ago, he got a divorce. We've been going steady for two months and plan to get married in the fall. I've decided to move into his apartment. I think I might be pregnant. At any rate, I dropped out of school last week, although I'd like to finish college sometime in the future. Now get a letter, get a letter like that and see how your pulse rate goes. On the next page she continued, Mom and Dad, I just wanted you to know that everything I've written so far in this letter is false. None of it is true but Mom and Dad. It is true that I got a C in French and I flunk math and I need some more money. Now, I get, uh, pretty smart. Go ahead. I, I guess that. I guess even bad news sounds good in certain in a in a certain perspective, wouldn't you say? I mean, w w wouldn't that be the case? You see, what what you know what perspective is? Perspective is being able to see through something. Most of our most of what we, how we view life, how we act in life, is determined by where we're coming from. Now watch this carefully. What are the real, what is the re, real value? What is, what is really the truth? Is determined many times by the perspective we, by which we approach that. For example, I have found that the thing, some of the things in my life which have been, at the time, the most painful, turn out to be the most blessing. I have found that sometimes those experiences through which I pass in life, which I would say are a literal curse, turn out to be the most growing, maturing experiences of my lifetime. It's all a matter of perspective. How do you see things? What is your perspective on them? 
And then there is what we would refer to as insight. You ready for this surprise? You blink your eyes 25 times a minute on the average. And every time you blink your eyes, it takes one-fifth. Therefore, if you took a journey of 10 hours driving an average of 40, mi 40 miles an hour, you would drive 20 miles with your eyes closed. Now, on Central Expressway in Dallas two weeks ago, <laughs> there, there was a guy, uh, uh, a proof that if you go over the back of my, over my uh, garage and look at the back of my car, I got the proof of the fact that some people drive with their eyes closed. Well, I know some folks who live their whole life with their eyes closed. They, see, they look, but they don't see. Um, like the Pharisees who looked at Simon Peter and they saw this crude, brutal, ignorant man. Jesus looked at him and saw the preacher of Pentecost and the bishop of the church. And there are some people who look at art and see colors. Others see the master of it. Some people look at life and never see it. They on a journey. They see the road, but they never see the awesome scenery around them. They are, it's easy to look. It's difficult to see. I'm not talking about people who can't see. I'm talking about people who won't see. And they're like those disciples who saw Jesus feed the 5,000 with loaves and fishes and each one of them had a basket of leftovers to take with them. And they got on a boat and, and they were out in the middle of the lake and a storm came up and they were frightened to death. They were scared. You know what Mark says about that? Look at what Mark says about that. He said they had not learned the lesson of the loaves. You know what he's saying? They saw Jesus perform a miracle, but they never saw Him perform a miracle. They looked at it, but they didn't see it. They never learned the lesson of the loaves. Insight. Let me tell you what Jesus likes. He likes a person who is able to see beyond the obvious, beyond the expected. He likes a person who is able to see beneath the surface to the reality of things with a perspective and a vision that's wide and full. Where are the dreamers? He liked their fervor. He liked their foresight. And he liked what they did with their finances. I want to paraphrase verse 9. Here's the paraphrase. Take the money you have to extend the cause of Christ and the kingdom of God and make friends with that money so that when you die and you go to heaven, you can live with them forever. That's what he's saying. Now there are three ways, three viewpoints concerning wealth, money. One is that we can look at it like an enemy. It's an enemy. Some people do, and so they take vows of celibacy. And they put on 
camel's hair coats and they go up and live in monasteries and they say, look how spiritual I am. You know, they see money as evil, an enemy. Some people see money as a master. That's what Jesus is talking about in the rest of this passage. He says, you know, no man can serve God and mammon. He'll, he'll love one, hate the other, cleave to one, and despise the other. For you cannot serve God and mammon, worldly wealth. He didn't say you wouldn't serve. He said you couldn't serve both at the same time. Some people see it as a master. But you can view finances as friends to use. And that's the, that's the option Jesus opted for. This is what he's saying. He's saying, use your material possessions to make friends for the kingdom like the secular world uses material possessions for, to extend its own kingdom. You see what I'm saying? It's how you use it. Now there's an interesting thing going on in this passage I want to share with you, and we got time a little early yet here. That's kind of going on here that's, that's deeper than what you see on the, you know, on the print. Is that when, he, when this shrewd steward went out and he told those folks, well, just, just reduce what you owe by 50%. Interesting thing. I can tell you're not overwhelmed by it, but it's pretty interesting. If you turn over to the 19th chapter of Luke, you find that word 50% used again. In the story of Zacchaeus, now Zacchaeus is recorded in the, this story is recorded in the book of Luke alone. And when he met Jesus there on that day, Zacchaeus came down and he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give 50% of my possessions to the poor. For in that culture and in that environment, 50% of anything was a figure, a number that symbolized generosity. So what Jesus was saying about this guy is this. Even though he's handling somebody else's money, but aren't we all handling somebody else's money? I mean, the last time I checked the Bible, most of us are handling what belongs to God. Even though this man handles handling somebody else's money, he was generous with it. And what Jesus is saying is this, what I'm looking for in the kingdom of God is a generosity among folks. And, curiously enough, when you get over to that Zacchaeus story and read it again, when Zacchaeus said, half of what I have I'm going to give to the poor, Jesus said immediately upon that statement, salvation has come to this house. For it seems to be what Jesus is saying is this, is that one of the supreme marks of salvation is generosity. Is generosity. What I like about this shrewd steward Jesus saying is this, is that he took what was, he was handling and he just was generous with it. And you say, well, I mean, if I had a bunch of my other person's money, I'd be generous with it too. Let me give you a clue. Bulletin. You are handling somebody else's possessions. And God didn't put us here and give us what we have to indulge ourselves. 
Now, Joe Hamilton winds this up for me with a little story. It's a true story about a girl who went off to camp and found the Lord. And when she came home, her parents, who were, who were totally secular, said, now we're not going to have this Christianity business in our house. You've got to decide, are you going to be a Christian or are you going to live here? You can't do both. Now, the father who said that wished he hadn't said it. You know, sometimes we fathers say stupid things we wish we could take back. Now, I never have, but I know my dad must have felt that way. Now, we say things that we, we wish we could take back, but it's too late. So they wished, they, he wished he hadn't said it, but it, he, couldn't, he, you know, he had too much pride to say, Hey, King's X, I didn't mean that. So they spent a sleepless night thinking about what their daughter was going to do the next morning. So the next morning they were down at breakfast when she came down the stairs with her, with her baggage and with this radiancy on her face, this enthusiasm on her face, singing a song she learned at camp. Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow Thee destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Perish thou my fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known, yet how rich is my condition, God in heaven is still my own. They just melted. So there wasn't just one face covered with tears, that morning at breakfast, but three. And there wasn't just one head bowed in prayer, but three. And there wasn't just one heart open to Christ. There were three. And that's what Jesus is looking for in the sons of God. An enthusiasm about Him an incandescence of fire in the bone concerning Him and His Word. A fervor that doesn't drag itself off to church but propels itself away from it to the world. A kind of vision that sees things as, it really, as they really are, who, that sees the real important things in life and a kind of commitment that makes available to God everything we have, destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Where is it? Can he find that in you? Can he? Find that in me. Let's bow and pray. Our Father, whatever you liked about these, this man, God help us that it would be in us. And whatever we lack, God, help us to find it. A commitment, a conviction, 
a vision, the surrender of our life and all that it involves. I pray for that, God, in me and all others. And I pray it in the name of Jesus for his sake. Now, here, 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 look here. I'm inviting you this morning to give your heart to Christ. To begin today you know, to follow Jesus. I believe that becoming a Christian begins at one point in time where you decide you'll follow Jesus. You surrender your life to Him. Confess your need of Him. Repent of your self-willed life and surrender to Him. I ask you this morning, have you ever done that? Have you ever given your heart and life to Jesus Christ? Personal surrender, personal encounter, personal trust. Maybe you need to come this morning to place a, your life in the discipline of a church to pursue corporately what the church pursues or to commit your life more fully to Him who made you, created you, gave you all that you have. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.